You are listening to First Church Charlotte. And amen, amen. Praise the Lord, somebody. Welcome everyone joining us online. Thank you for joining us. We have people, it's always amazing to see the map of people watching. Uh, we have people watching in Spain that I know of. We have uh, usually a fairly large uh, cluster from Russia. I have no idea why our church is connected in Russia, uh, but for some reason that has come up many, many times. Our brothers and sisters, wherever you are, we bless you. We greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> We're in Romans chapter number 12, and I want to read verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to read from the message translation so we hear the text with new ears. I think this is always helpful when applying the word of the Lord to our lives. So verse number one, chapter number 12, the book of Romans. So here is what I want you to do, God helping you. Notice that little phrase there. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. My title today is God help you. <laughs> Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And can the church say amen? amen. We have a very recent phenomenon that is extremely painful to us as a society and that is this uh, last few years, the rise of the uh, rage killer, uh, the, the, the mass shooting, where people, as their last statement to the world, before they either end their life or before they are locked away in a very small uh, penal closet uh, where they should be, uh, having done so terrible a thing, um, we... We see them take normally an assault rifle of some type and they'll go out and they will kill as many people as possible. And this is a horrifying statement against a society and it's particularly troubling because if you look in these people's lives, uh, they don't seem to have gone through anything worse than what other people have gone through. There's other people who had it much more difficult than they did. And they, you know, put their big boy britches on and dealt with it. Uh, they did not turn their life into a cauldron of hate. <clears throat> and as a society, this is, let's be honest, this is very troubling. And I, I know you know of the recent event that happened in Atlanta where a very disturbed and angry young man took an assault rifle and killed eight Asian American women in the Atlanta area. <clears throat> As if that wasn't troubling enough, uh, this young man was a member of the Crabtree First Baptist Church, which is a successful uh, Baptist church in uh, the Atlanta area. And 
it was shocking because we don't think of people who do this kind of thing as being connected. We think of them as being disconnected. We don't think of them as being in the life of an institution. We think of them as living outside the institution but filled with hate for the institution. There is a pastor who was for many years on the staff of uh, Crabtree First Baptist Church of Atlanta. The surprising thing is that he himself is Asian-American. His name is Chul Yu. He now pastors a church in the Maryland area. And he, for several years, worked on the staff at Crabtree Baptist Church. He wrote an article. When I came across it, I was immediately arrested by the article because it breaks all the presuppositions. It breaks all of the judgment that is in the media cycle. And it forces you to look at the problem not simply as a political short story, but as a real-world problem that our generation is having to deal with. Let me, I don't normally read this much from an article, but let me read a little bit from the article of Pastor Yu, who had served uh, several years on the staff of Crab Apple Baptist Church in Atlanta. He's writing, again, this is his words, not mine. I woke up last week to the news that there had been a mass shooting in Atlanta, and the shooter seemed to have a specific target, uh, Asian-American women. What I had feared deep down for several months had finally come to pass. The hateful rhetoric and anger toward Asians had reached its full bloom. As I scrolled down the news feed, I caught a glimpse of the picture of the gunman. For a moment, I thought he looked like someone I knew. Then I saw the name and my heart sank in a way I didn't know it could. The murder suspect was a member of the church in Georgia where I served before my current pastoral position in Maryland. Our families are friends. Some said it was a crisis of discipleship. They used it to criticize the church and the church world. Others said it had to do with an unhealthy view of guns. Many pointed to purity culture and a warped view of sexuality. One prominent public theologian theologian posted a picture of the church and stated, the shooter was radicalized here. I grieved for friends who were caught up in all of this. Those who know Crabapple First Baptist only as the church that had posted the baptism and testimony of a young man who went on to kill eight people are bound to have a distorted view. It's hard for us to imagine him among a congregation full of generous, caring, Christ-centered people. But that's who I know Crabapple to be. Its members remain my close friends. He continues, The day Crabapple First Baptist voted to bring me on staff... The entire church erupted with applause and this overwhelming sense of joy. Any fear that I might have had about my being received in a predominantly white Southern Baptist church vanished. My family thoroughly enjoyed our three years there. And in hindsight, the Lord used that period to give us much needed rest and support And he closes with this statement. I want to call your attention to it because this is profoundly true. As with all churches, Crabapple is not a perfect place. It does have its shortcomings. 
but not the ones that would lead a young man to go on a murderous rampage. Now, when I read this, I immediately thought of how many ugly things have been written about that church, and I thought about how many people have used it to advance a political agenda showing their cynicism. And I, I, thought, I came across this article, and I immediately wanted to share it to everybody because it shows a more nuanced reality of the generation and the society we are living in. Now, why would I tell a fairly heavy story to you on Palm Sunday? Why would I use this day that's typically a day of, of, of the church entering into his courts with thanksgiving? Why would I tell you a heavy story like this? Well, uh, there is a method to my admitted madness, and it is uh, the following. We must continually remind ourselves that Church as a system is not what transforms the real inner heart. Church is a help. Church is a blessing. Can I have a big amen from church folks? Church is a place for real friendships, and it is a manner in which we do life one with another. You nor I were created to do life alone. We were not created to do discipleship alone. We were not created to do ministry alone. The Lord put us together as a manifestation of himself and his work in the earth. The local church was not the disciples' idea. It was God's idea. And we are placed within a local church, and is it imperfect? Yes, but uh, it needs to be imperfect, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Is the church filled with error? Yes, but it needs to be filled with error, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Does church have plenty of people making mistakes? Yes, and it needs to be full of church, uh, church filled with people making plenty of mistakes, and I'll tell you why. In fact, I'll just go ahead and tell you why. Because the church was meant for you. And if we had a church without error in it, or a church without sin in it, or a church without bad attitudes in it, then you wouldn't be welcome here. Yeah, I did. I know I did. I want you to know the church is not about sinless people. The church is about repentant people. And so we, all of us, it's not that we are perfect. It's not that we have this ability uh, to be perfect. Uh, We have anointing and power upon us through the Holy Spirit, but our ability to be completely surrendered and completely, how shall we say, um, exalted of the things of God is the problem. And so we sin. What does sin mean? It means to miss the mark. It's not singularly a statement of personal evil. It's to miss the mark. And that is, I was not wholly submitted. I was not completely right. I was not complete. And so no matter what I have done, Christ and what he represents is still above me, bidding me to come nearer, calling me to come closer. And so all of us, we are here not because we have attained perfection, but we have acknowledged repentance. And so a church is far from perfect, but uh, it's not the kind of imperfect that deserves anyone to become part of the 
horrible statement of the hour and the generational scream. And forgive me for using some philosophical language here, but these mass shootings are like this existential scream of rage by people who are not exactly sure what they're mad about. They're sure they've been done wrong, but they can't quite put their finger on how. And they're furious and they're angry. They didn't get what they needed. They weren't given what they wanted and they're mad about it. And somebody needs to pay. But when you try to figure out exactly what was done to them, it's not as half as bad as something that happened to someone right beside them and they went on to make a great success of their life. It's a terrible reality of our generation. So uh, why tell the story? I, I want us to be reminded in our heart that true Christianity is not adopting a church system, but it's dedicating our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. A church system is a help. Some churches are loud. Some churches are quiet. Some churches use as multimedia. Some churches don't use multimedia. Some churches are rural. Some churches are urban. That's not the point. None of those things matter in light of the call that we have received to surrender our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and live as though what he did for us matters. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to say when he, in this language that I think the translator does a great job of placing in an informal tone that we can apply to our lives, does this great job of pointing this out. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. What we are called to do is not be good enough so God will place us with the good people. There is no good people. There is only one who is good. Now, we use the terminology good to refer to the manner in which we interact with each other, and rightly so. If you do people wrong, you're going to get a reputation for doing people wrong. Can I have a witness. If you don't pay your bills, your credit score is going to crater. It's not personal. It happens to everybody. There's no point sucking your thumb. There's no point being mad at anybody. It is the manner in which we work with another. But speaking spiritually, there was none of us who could stand in the holiness of Almighty God. Speaking spiritually, there was none of us who deserved salvation or had a reality where God owed us something. God doesn't owe me anything, not even one little breath that I'll breathe after the one I'm taking when I say what I'm about to say. God doesn't owe me anything. This is all the gift of God in my life and in your life. So what we do is not simply use a church system and say that's enough. A church system, a church fellowship, a church culture, this is all a manner of doing life together. This is not the humbling of ourself in trembling and in spiritual reverence before Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to take our ordinary, daily, lived life, the ups and the downs of it, the good and the bad of it, the breakfast and the lunch of it, the dinner and the midnight 
refrigerator raid of it. And we're going to place all of it before God as worship. Uh, so I, I'll maybe say a few more things about that in just a moment. Now, I want to tell you a, a little bit of a lighter story. This is a joke. I married a Cajun, uh, and I have, uh, as a result, been introduced to lots of Cajun culture. My wife may not look very Cajun, but trust me, she is from South Louisiana, and she can sing all those Cajun songs, you know, that make you want to go bang your head against a chalkboard. She can sing all of those songs. And I, she introduced me to crawfish etouffee and gumbo and mighty God and uh, the like. And to this day, honestly, I like Cajun food more than she does. And she grew up in Cajun country. My favorite restaurant is a Cajun place. And she rolls her eyes when I make her go there three times in two days. <laughs> Makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but uh, in Cajun culture, there is this whole uh, subculture of humor in Cajun culture, and there's this all, their own genre of joke called uh, Boudreaux jokes. Um, and they're also known as Boudreaux and Thibodeau jokes. And these guys are always kind of ne'er-do-wells, and they're always cutting up. They're always getting in trouble. They're always, uh, you know, fighting and drinking and carrying on and generally, you know, showing out. And uh, let me tell you a Boudreaux joke. I cannot speak very good Cajun culture or Cajun uh, shall we say, Cajun accent, but I really, really am sad about it, and I want to get better at it. So Boudreaux and his good buddy Thibodeau are driving along the levee one day, and they're in, doing one of their favorite pastimes, which is, you know, drinking a little, kind of like some of you guys do. You drink a little. You love Jesus, but you drink a little. God help you. I'm preaching on God help you. And uh, <laughs> Boudreaux's driving along with Thibodeau. Don't look at anybody. Don't look at anybody. Uh, Boudreaux's driving along with Thibodeau and they're, they they look down the road, the state highway they're about to pull onto, and uh, they see a, a roadblock with state troopers. And uh, Boudreaux says to Thibodeau, oh my, here we are, troopers going to see us with this beer, they're going to bust us. And Thibodeau says, oh my, what are we going to do? And Boudreaux says, tell you what, don't worry about it, Thibodeau. We'll just finish our beers right here. We'll peel the labels off the bottles and we'll stick them labels on our foreheads and throw them empty bottles in the ditch. They ain't going to know nothing. Thibodeau says, Mize, what's that you talking about? <laughs> Boudreau says, you just be quiet and let me do the talking. When they drive up to the roadblock, the first thing the trooper says is, have you fellas been drinking? Boudreaux points to his forehead. Remember, they finished their beers, they peeled the labels off, they put them on their foreheads. No, sir, no, sir, we used to do that, but now we on the patch. <laughs> All right, so it is possible for our religion to just be a patch. It is possible for us to go to church year after year and not be changed by what the preacher is trying to give us. It's possible for us to go year after year and not hear what the worship singer is singing about. It's possible for us to view church as a cultural artifact, a, a way of being, a style of gathering, and never hear the story of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to admit to you, 
I cannot know Jesus like the disciples did. They knew him as a person. They knew him as a man with a face, a man who had a manner of speaking. Uh, We know him as an image, as a symbol, as God showing us himself. That's how we know God. Through faith, we can have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith, we can pray, we can repent, we can read the stories that are given to us from his very lips, and we can seek to know him through faith. The disciples knew him as someone who got weary, who got sleepy, who fell asleep in the bottom of the boat. The disciples knew him as a personal relationship. We know him in a devotional, intentional focusing of all heart, life, and spirit upon what he represents. So let me ask you this. What does Jesus represent to you? And are you trying to serve him, know him, please him? Or is church a system whereby you have friends and you have fellowship and a cultural convenience factor in our life? If I, as a pastor... Uh, entertain you in a church system, I failed. Because I have to confess to you, a church system can't save you. You need to direct your heart toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to say, what did his life mean to me? What did his story show to me? And what am I going to do to honor that with my every day, getting up in the morning, uh, going to work, driving home, eating dinner, laying my head down to sleep, what am I going to do in my ordinary life to know him? It's not enough for us to peel a label off the church and put it on our foreheads and say we're religious. Um, Let me give you a story from the Gospels, and I love stories from the Gospels because they're sacred stories, uh, and they're they're given to us They're given to all generations, and the reason why they're powerful is there's lessons in them. Uh, Jesus set people free from demons, and we don't know the story. Uh, Jesus delivered people bound, and we don't know the stories. There were many, many delivered, but this is a story that's given to us as a sacred story, as a teaching, something for us to revisit again and again, something for us to apply again and again, something for us to sing about, something for us to preach about, something for us to write symphonies about and poems about about. You reflect on it. It's sacred. Here's the story. Luke chapter number eight. Luke writes as a physician. And so he often gives us details that show his, his physician's heart, if you will. Uh, his, he has a, a certain empathy for a people that you will, I think if you take time to see it has a, it's beautiful in its own way. Uh, here he's telling the story of a man who is bound by many demons, and Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, teaching many people, arguing with scholars, uh, you know, helping people understand spiritual things. Uh, Church is about more than deliverance, but we can't lose the deliverance that's in the church. Can I have a better amen than that? Jesus is on one side, and what's he's doing? He, he's, he's, he's talking uh, law with the lawyers. He's talking doctrine with the theologians. Uh, he is talking to normal people. He's making plain the scripture. He's even healing. He's even blessing. Uh, but 
at one moment, he stops and he says, load up, guys, we're going to the other side. And the interesting thing here is that there's only one reason for him to go to the other side. Why? It's not because the people there are going to accept him. I want you to get this. They're not going to accept him in Gadara. Does Jesus not know this? Is this a failed missions trip? I would suggest to you Jesus knows before he goes to Gadara that Gadara is not ready for him. I'll explain. I think he knows before they get, he gets there that they're not really interested in purity or righteousness. After all, what are Jews doing raising pigs? Don't have time to preach about that, but the demons are going to leave the man possessed of demons, go into the people's pigs. Why are Jews raising pigs? These are not, you know, devout religious people. Uh, But there's one man on the other side who has only one hope, and that is this. If Jesus doesn't make a difference, there ain't going to be any difference made. How many of you have that testimony in your life? If Jesus didn't make a difference, there was no hope for you. You wouldn't be who you are. You would, some of us wouldn't even be here. We might be in prison. We might be dead. It's the grace of God. There's one guy in Gadara who's ready for an answer, and it's not the good people. It's the crazy guy. Jesus crosses the sea. The enemy tries to stop him with a great storm. Jesus steals the storm. That's another message, fun message to preach. Uh, The message goes like this. Uh, How did the demons know Jesus was coming? Anyway, moving on from that. And so uh, he gets to the other side, this demoniac. That's a real churchified way of talking about a demon-possessed man. Uh, He meets Jesus, and he falls on his knees. You know the story. Jesus frees the demons. The demons go into the swine. The swine run into uh, the sea and are drowned. And the Bible says when the town people finally show up, when the people of Gadara finally arrive to see what all of the fuss is about, uh, they see a changed man. Now, how did they know this man? Luke explains, verse 27, for a long time. This man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. He's, he's living truly as a, a beast, uh, not in his right mind, living as an animal. Uh, he is, of course, as a result of that, homeless and naked and uh, rather smout, smelly, not the most hygienic guy you've ever met. And uh, he's wretched and he is tortured by uh, in a, an evil spirit. One of the things that we as we get more and more organized and as we get more and more dignified and as we get more and more, how shall we say, holy in our own eyes, um, we uh, can fall into a snare of viewing the mess of other people's lives as though they chose it. And we are judgmental in our spirit as though they chose that. And in our hearts, there's this little bit of religious vanity that says, you kind of deserve it. You made those decisions. You take that. Look, I'm not trying to say they have no blame. I'm just trying to point out to all of us that people can end up in places they never intended to end up. And we need to have the empathy of the Lord Jesus Christ for people in a condition of bondage and hopelessness. I'm not saying we have to empower them or make excuses for them, but we have to have a Christian empathy that in some way testifies not to the judgment of our vanity, but to the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Is that fair? I think it's fair. Uh, And so here you have Jesus. He frees this man, 
And here's a guy, he's, he's lived this broken, tortured existence, not something he chose for himself, uh, unless you want to go far back to early decisions, because uh, honestly, that is how sin works in all of our lives. It's all taking us somewhere. First, it serves us. We feel like it's fun. We feel like it's pleasurable. We feel like it makes our life better. We feel like in some way, <laughs> we feel like our life is better when we let ourselves do this thing. And so we do this. We go there, we uh, engage in that, we uh, indulge in that, we think it's making our lives better, it's serving us. But um, the problem with sin is it's not satisfied serving you, it's going to lure you along until you are serving it. This is the story of bondage, both spiritual and truly uh, the addictive stories that are within the human, the human condition. Uh, when the town people finally show up, this guy who lived among the dead, who raged and who cut himself, tortured uh, individual who, when they trapped him, would break the chains and attack them and flee back into the night. Uh, they find him transformed, and there's three signs of this transformation. Number one, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Uh, number two, he's clothed appropriately. I'll talk about that in a moment. Number three, he is in his right mind. Now, before I get into these signs, I want to say that as a church, we uh, desperately and aggressively believe in divine deliverance. We are filled with testimonies of people whose life is an example of how the Lord set them free. Sometimes it's miraculous and it happens quick. Other times it is God building the person until the person is bigger than the addiction. Sometimes we see the deliverance in a moment where we show the addiction that God is bigger than the addiction. Uh, but sometimes God uses life as testimony and he builds the person until the person is bigger than the addiction. Uh, both of these things can happen. Now, admittedly, we like it better when it's miraculous uh, because that's less pain and suffering for us. And if you're like me, nobody's, ain't nobody got no time for pain and suffering. But ideally, if it's only miraculous, the temptation will come around to you again. And it'll come around to you again, and it'll come around to you again. This isn't just alcohol or drugs. This is also pornography. This is also sexual uh, type of uh, transgressions. All of the things that bind the human heart and bind the human mind are going to come around again. It's the lust of the flesh. It's not spiritual oppression. That can be exacerbated by it, but it's the lust of the flesh. The best plan for your life is not just for God to be bigger than your addiction, but to God for have God invest in you until you are transformed. Oh, praise God, church people. You are, has anybody here been transformed by the power of God? Then you become... Then you become a living sacrifice. I'm going to take my everyday life, my getting up in the morning, my brushing my teeth and fixing my hair, my making my breakfast and planning my lunch. I'm going to take my ordinary life, my losing my temper, my struggling with frustration, and I'm going to offer it to God, not as a plan of salvation, but as worship. I'm going to offer it to God as a consideration of what he has done for me. Yeah. 
And so the town finds this man, and he is sitting at Jesus' feet. What does this show to them? I, I want to point something out to, to you here. This man is going to want to become a follower of Jesus, but the Lord is not going to allow him to leave Gadara. He's going to say, you stay here, and you be a witness to these people. You stay here and you be a witness to these people. Now, this man could easily say, I don't really have a systematic theology yet, Lord Jesus. I'll talk about that in just a moment. This man could say, I haven't learned how to teach a Bible study. I don't understand the major nor the minor prophets. And if you're churchified enough, you know the minor prophets are harder to understand than the majors. You, will, you read through the Bible, you will bang your way through some, uh, so it's like hitting your head on the wall, boom, 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 all through those minor prophets. Holy moly, what's going on? I don't know. Let's just keep reading three chapters a day. <laughs> it's okay if I'm real. I want to be real. Like, my God, three chapters a day. If I don't get through this, anyway, moving along. Uh, this man doesn't have Bible study skills. He doesn't have a systematic theology. But the Lord wants him to stay and testify of change, deliverance. It's as though the Lord says to him what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome. I want you to take your ordinary life, your normal, get up in the morning, go to work life. And I want you to offer that as a testimony to God. You make it worship to God. And if you'll do that, it'll be witness to, Gad- witness to Gadara. They will see the change in your life. But what about systematic theology? These people aren't ready for systematic theology, so there's no need to schedule a debate. They need the testimony of deliverance. This is so important for a healthy church. There's plenty of unhealthy churches, but we're not aiming for that, right? This is so important for a healthy church to understand. People live where they are and what they're ready for. I know that you and I wish that some people were ready for things they're not ready for, but wherever they are, God loves them right there. Whatever they're ready for, God loves them right there. There's no sense sending the Apostle Paul to the Gadara because nobody's interested in understanding uh, uh, these kind of things in Gadara. But somebody who can take their everyday, ordinary life, get up in the morning and say, this day is worship to the Lord. The way I go to work is going to be worship. The way I deal with trouble is going to be worship. I'm going to take it and offer it. Three things, sitting at Jesus' feet. Here is a man who has found his path for his life. This is what these people are saying. I'm no longer tortured. I found a way. I found meaning. I found purpose. All of you, until you find your way, whether or not you're a part of a church system, you're going to struggle. You're going to be up and down. You've got to find your way. A church can help you, but you need to find Jesus and you need to sit at his feet. The church cannot replace you sitting at Jesus' feet. Is that fair? Um, and so they see him with meaning. They see him with intention. Uh, in this time, this is symbolic of a person who has found a way Uh, uh, something worth giving their life for. The people see this broken man uh, now at the feet of Jesus. Secondly, they see him clothed appropriately. I I want you to see this a little differently. Um, The Bible doesn't talk a lot about clothes. I I know some people wish it did, but it doesn't. It just doesn't talk a lot about about clothes. Now, uh, there are a couple themes of Scripture that you should understand about clothes. And the first of them, 
The most important, if you want to be New Testamently correct, is to understand a respectable, respectable, because both Peter and Paul talks about uh, how we uh, would be comport ourselves and dress ourselves uh, respectable. So that's a theme uh, of the scripture. If you are uh, disrespectful of your place, your generation, your time, uh, people don't want what you represent and they will not receive your witness even if you want to give it to them because they've rejected what you represent. So uh, dress needs to be respectable. Secondly, uh, dress needs to be true to uh, God's image upon you. This is why you get moral statements of uh, in the Old Testament particularly where uh, cross-dressing is prohibitive. It's not that there were certain cl- cl- types of clothes that they said you can wear and you can't wear because in the Old Testament everybody wore some version of a tunic and the more money you had the more cloth you wrapped around yourself to show off until you get to the richest people in society and they take clothes and just wrap it all around them like a Greek toga to demonstrate wealth. Uh, the poor workers in the field can't do that. They don't have church clothes and dress clothes like uh, you guys have, you rich suckers out there. Uh, they had one outfit and they uh, would buy that which was adaptable, uh, adaptable to their world. For example, scriptural terminology uh, to gird your loins. This is because workers, uh, they would have uh, clothes, but they wouldn't have two sets of clothes. They'd have one set of clothes. And so they had to adapt that clothes for if they're working in the field or like, say, Jesus doing carpentry, for example. Uh, so they would take the longer robe or tunic that they, they had, and they would tie it up around their legs uh, to create kind of uh, Old Testament, New Testament jams. You know what jams are? Kind of like long shorts. Um, that's how they would work in the field. This isn't my opinion. This isn't my theology. This is history. Uh, if you have a studious nature to your personality, you can learn all this for yourself. Um, but uh, that's how clothing is used. And however, you could deny God's image upon you and cross-dress, and that was a moral offense in the Scripture. All societies know what that means for their society. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, in Scotland, uh, Scottish men are not considered uh, cross-dressers because they wear a kilt. Um, uh, tell one of them at the local pub and see what he does with you. Um, <laughs> I'm preaching a lot about drinking today. Lord, in a moment, I want to have us all sing and sing, let us gather at the river. <laughs> anyway, that's a joke. Moving along. Um, so uh, the point with clothes that I want you to see is not thou shalt and thou shalt not. Um, you need to dress respectably because if you dress disrespectively, your people, your neighborhood, your generation will reject you. And as a believer, we want to not simply uh, dress in a way whereby, you know, um, it's the minimal and there's half of our society rejects us. We need to dress in the way uh, where we have testimony, can I have an amen, and we have witness, respectable, appropriate dress. Now, that's the sum total of uh, clothing in the Scripture, unless you're a priest. And then if you were a priest, um, you had to wear a certain pair of underpants when you were up on the stage so people would not be shocked by the view looking up at the stage. Or if you were, well, how did I get into this? This is what happens when you're a Bible nerd, okay? You just chase rabbits. Uh, the other thing, if you uh, later on, the, the Hebrew men uh, took a poetic 
structure of Hebrew poetry that referred to clothing themselves to remember who God was and they decided they had to wear tassels on their clothes and the like. But outside of respectable and moral, uh, the Bible doesn't talk much about clothes except to show someone who is able to integrate in their society. And here's a madman and he runs around naked like a beast and his own society as a result fears him, rejects him and wants nothing of what he represents. But when he is changed and they come back and see him, he is clothed appropriately as if to say, I can healthily fit in my world. You see, clothing is the part of you that the world sees and judges. We all have survived COVID and we all know what it is to put on a nice shirt and leave on our uh, hopefully sweatpants or your underpants if you're not, uh, you know, in, in the good mood that day. I have had more than one spiritual meeting where I have on a nice shirt and I have on my <clears throat> um, uh, house pants under uh, there. And uh, maybe you have too. But I wouldn't go out like that. Why? That would show the world. I didn't, I wasn't fit company. You see, here's a man, he gets it. He gets his generation. Hear me, somebody. He understands he's in this world at this time, and he has to integrate with these people. He dresses appropriately. And thirdly, he's in his right mind. Oh, that matters. Some of you guys aren't even in your right mind. Uh, He is in his right mind. Real quick. Uh, first, sitting at the feet of Jesus. What does that represent? Jesus will say, if any of you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. Second, dressed. This is how other people uh, perceive us. So Paul says to the church, uh, the Colossian church, clothe yourself with compassion with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. And over all of these virtues put love, which binds them together in perfect union. Third, your mind is made whole. The Lord has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Here's a broken man, possessed, tormented. He's being destroyed by demonic forces. He meets Jesus. He's changed. And you see the symbols, these three symbols. He commits himself to Jesus as a way. He commits himself to the realization he has found a purpose in his life. He sits at the feet of Jesus. He is now fit for interaction with his society. He's now not simply crazy, but he is a testimony. God wants to take all your crazy and turn it into testimony. Third, he's in his right mind. He's no longer a prisoner of fear and doubt and pain and loss. Christ has healed him. It's a shame when people can go to church for years and not have their mind be healed. Church as a system is not enough. It can help you. It can strengthen you. It can be brothers and sisters to hold up your tired hands. God invented it so you wouldn't do life alone. God invented it so you wouldn't do ministry alone. But church is not enough. You can get a church label and slap it on your forehead 
as though that is enough and then go out and in your heart be the very opposite of what Christ represented. You didn't hear a single message. You didn't see a single example. You didn't hear a single song. Yes, you were there. You missed it all. These things ought not to be. And so the apostle says it so beautifully. I want you to do this, God helping you. I want you to take your everyday life, your ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Musicians come, I'm almost done. I have spent the last week with these, this theme in my personal devotion. And I have, as a result, begun asking myself a lot of questions. And I noticed that some of them were somewhat repetitive. Uh, and as I applied them to myself, I, I found each one of them challenging. And I, I'm aware that <clears throat> we can be church people for many reasons. I'll be completely honest with you. I grew up in a religious family. It's easy for me to be a church person. It's not a path of courage for me to be a church person. You need courage not to be a church person in my family. (laughs) It's not an act of courage for me to be a church person. But if I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to go to the word of the Lord. I have to admit, I, don't have, I can't have this face-to-face disciple-type relationship with Christ. I have to look at his life. What does it mean? <clears throat> I have to read the gospels. What does this show me? And I have to commit myself in that way. What can I learn with this as my purpose? If I put Jesus at the forefront of my life, that will take me down some uncomfortable paths, and it has. It has. I've, I've suffered and cried and bled and endured all kind of name calling um, because of that and you have too if you take it seriously if you just don't slap the sticker on your head and say well I'm a church person it may be that church has been convenient for you you've never really (laughs) you've never really asked yourself what does it mean to follow Christ for me, where I, what does it mean for me to look at him? And I see this one who wasn't in trouble, but he gave himself to help those of us in trouble. What does that mean for my life? And how can I learn from that? He who was whole, he became broken for me. He who had power laid it down, hoping that we would learn love because love and power don't really coexist very well. What does that mean for me? So I, I have found these questions in my life this past week fairly repetitive. And I, I want to um, just frame them all under a, a, group head, a group question that goes like this. Am I being transformed by who Christ is and by, what, and by what Christ represents? Or am I just peeling a label off the bottle and slapping it on my forehead? What does that mean for me? So here's uh, some questions I think we should ask ourselves. Am I really trying to pattern my life after Jesus Christ and what his life represented? Or is my Christianity really kind of a social convenience for me? Is it a type of, you know, social signaling for me? Or am I 
trying to follow what Christ represents. Also, do I really try to clothe myself in the virtues that testify of Jesus? Or do I dress myself in the attitudes that reflect my culture? Do I really desire to be the person that God designed me to be? Or am I just trying to live my best life? (laughs) Am I really looking at what Jesus represented and saying, that's the highest star in my sky? That's the way I will walk? Or am I rather just kind of pursuing my culture's expectations or an idealistic version of myself. You know, the idealistic version is like a first date. You act like you're richer than you are. You act like you're funnier than you are. You act like you're more interesting than you are. Oh, no one laughed. I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to point out that much truth to you. All right. Next question. Uh, Do I hunger to know Jesus Christ and submit my heart to Him more than any other knowledge or any other status or any other achievement? Uh, Or is Christianity just the life I found reasonable in my personal story? Am I willing to proclaim what God has done for me wherever I am and to whomever I meet because my whole life is an offering to the Lord? I'm almost done. I want to point out one last thing to you. If you take this seriously and you begin to ask yourself who Jesus was, what does his life represent? If you really take it seriously, you're going to realize something. That Jesus, his life is the lived image of who God intended us to be when he made us in Eden. A life where we're not competitive one with another. That's in Jesus. A life where we truly strive to prefer and and love one another. That's in Jesus. A life where we value things eternal. That's in Jesus. A life that knows no sin no matter what is thrown against it. That's in Jesus. You, when you take it seriously, begin to see Jesus. As God's idea of man, not man's idea of God. So help. So I'm going to end with this and then we're all going to stand. Here's what I want you to do. God help you. (laughs) Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention upon God. It's not going to happen by accident. You'll be changed from the inside out. That's how love changes us. Readily Recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. Sounds like social media, doesn't it? Social media is a dumpster fire, but enough about that. 
God brings out the best of us and develops a well-formed maturity in us. Stand with me all across the house. Those of you visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. We hope we've hosted you well. Thank you for taking a chance on us and giving us some of your time. We're an altar church. That means we end our services with altar time. You, of course, don't have to come. You can be dismissed at any time during this. But several things are going to happen right now. We as a church believe in the power of prayer. Uh, We believe in uh, laying on of hands. We're careful about it nowadays in the era of COVID. But we're not ashamed of it. Um, So... In this altar time, some of our pastoral staff will be down here. I want to encourage all of you who have a need. It may be sickness in your body. It may be an oppression in your mind. I've preached about that a little bit. It may be drama in your family, financial need. All of these things are real life stuff. Um, If you believe that God can make a way in your life and you'd like to join your faith with someone else, um, I want to invite you that once our worship team begins leading us deeper into worship, I'd like to invite you to step out of where you are and come down to the front. Uh, and join your faith with one of our pastors and believe for a breakthrough. We as a church believe that. Also, we desire to be the kind of church that has the moving of God uh, in our services. And that's why we haven't completely abandoned uh, an effort for an altar culture, even in the time of COVID. Um, if you've had your vaccine, if you're safe, if you've had uh, already been sick and you're through that, uh, feel free to come and just help us in this altar and create that altar culture. We value that. Also, in a few minutes... We're going to have a baptismal service that takes place. Three people taking on the name of Jesus. That's exciting. Uh, Our friends and guests, you're welcome at any time to be dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us. Let me pray over you right now. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for every heart that beats in this house right now. Lord, don't let us mistake a system of fellowship and a system of creating community and uh, church life. Don't let us mistake that as the same thing as being changed by the pursuit of your way. All of us are called to pursue you. All of us are called to ask ourselves what it means for us to follow this man, Christ Jesus, who represented God here on earth, who was killed for a crime he was not guilty of, who took the sins that he had not committed, and who buried them all in a tomb that he soon vacated as a testimony of eternal life and spiritual renewal to all of us. Lord, I'm praying that we as a church would be the people that has a light shining through us. It would not just be a label, a church sign, a cultural system, a style of gathering, but Lord Jesus, it would be in the sincere question of how do I honor what you have done for me with my life? God, help us to take our ordinary life, our Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday life, take the ordinariness of our life and bring it to you as worship, not as a self-salvation plan, not as a proclamation of worthiness or an exclamation of righteousness or holiness, but to offer it to you as worship in the understanding that you would cover us with your redemptive blood and make us whole through your beautiful spiritual restoration. Be with us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Don't let us leave unchanged. Don't let us walk out of here unchallenged. But let the word get deep into our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
This altar is open. Our worship team is going to begin to lead us closer to the presence of the Lord. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.